Hi everyone, I'm Les. And I'm Ashley. And you're listening to Anthropotamus, where we explore some of your favorite anthropology topics. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Anthropotamus. We're here with Dr. Dr. David Zeitlin, Professor of Social Anthropology at the University of Oxford, and we're here to discuss his new book, An Anthropological Toolkit, 60 Useful Concepts. Thank you, David, for coming on the show with us today. Thank you very much for having me. So before we get started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background, uh, more specifically in anthropology? Okay. Um, So I've been doing research in Cameroon in West Africa for a long, long time. Um, I started doing research there in 1985, I think it was, um, for my doctorate. And I keep going back because I keep thinking of new questions or I suppose I also go back because I want to find out what happens next. And so one thing leads to another. So that's the kind of field research part of my work. Um, And the other side to things is that both here in Oxford and at my previous um, university at the University of Kent, the University of Kent in Britain, I should say, University of Kent at Canterbury, as it used to be called, I've taught um, seminars for students who are starting their research. So the induction year seminar for new PhD students. And I've been really struck by the huge range of different issues that different students have. And I've got unhappy at um, the, what do I want to say? I've got unhappy at how unhelpful big ideas can be. And so that general sense of dissatisfaction has lingered with me for quite a long year, a long time, and I found myself making notes quite often when I was actually in Cameroon, in fact. I would make notes about some idea or something that I was reading, which I thought would be helpful to research students, other people doing research like me. And then, well, I suppose ultimately COVID came along and I was, as it were, locked in my house without students, without administration um, or far less administration. And so my lockdown task ended up, one of my lockdown tasks ended up being taking bits of these notes, other things that I'd been thinking about over the years and bringing them all together. And hey, presto, here we are with a book. You make it sound like... Publishing a book is so easy. <laughs> well, I mean, no, it's two, it took two years of work at one level, but you can, I mean, it's the, um, you can almost say that's come out of 20 years of teaching. So right. was it, did it take a long time or was it really short? I don't know. 
It's funny that that's a, it's a fairly common story for a lot of new authors these last couple of years. They've had uh, all this experience or all this um, these things, you know, kind of bopping around in their head. And then when the lockdown happened and they have no other outlet, they just get to kind of start writing and get it out there just because they've got nothing better to do. Yeah. And of course, I wasn't able to go to Cameroon. So actually, I ended up listening to lots of old recordings, partly to keep my language skills going, but um, also to... Um, I ended up transcribing stuff that I never quite got round to transcribing. And one of those recordings actually ended up being in the the final section of the book because I stumbled onto a really interesting story that I'd forgotten about and listening to the recording brought it all back. And then uh, when I was provoked by Michael Hertzfeld into doing, showing, showing what this sort of more textured approach might look like. Uh, this was, this, that work was there waiting to be written about. There was a word I was going to ask you that I wasn't exactly sure what it meant. Marincho? I believe so. What is that? <laughs> uh, they are the senior titled women they're often described in Cameroonian French they're described as reine or princesse so queens or princesses but it's not quite as that's not a brilliant translation because the most senior Maranjo is a sister of the chief so it sort of works but others of them are senior women from outlying hamlets. So it's a set of, I think there's six of them, six titled women who are very important in, well, some Mambilla ritual. Okay. Yes, I was reading that and I was like, why are these women so important and why do they have to be here? Well, you <laughs> that can't, would make I mean, more sense for them. Yeah. You can't do, there are rituals you can't do without some men. There are other, and other rituals you need the women. And actually the Nguyen ritual, you need both. And that was part of the problem that um, the events, and I now can't remember the date. Hang on a sec. I will, I have only this morning finally uh, received um, hard copy. So I'm very pleased oh. that I can actually reach over and pick up a copy of the book. Um, that must be pretty exciting. It is quite exciting. Um, and it's actually slightly fatter than I realised it would be, which is nice. Um, where's it gone? And now I can't find a date. Oh, yes, it is. 18th of December, 2004. Can you remember where you were there, where you were on that date? Um, anyway, so... Everyone was waiting. This, this, that was a date when they were doing a preliminary rite for the main Nguyen ritual, which is a reenactment of the coronation of the chief. Um, so very relevant in Britain at the moment, um, where we're all thinking about coronations and funerals and things. Um, but 
so in order to do this preliminary ritual, you needed the senior women, the Maranjo, and then there are ritual chiefs. And I've sort of been inducted to become a ritual chief. And um, both have to be present at the same time. And there came a point where there were no women. And so the men sat around drinking, waiting. And eventually the senior woman arrived and she was very cross because she'd been held up at an outlying hamlet. And it was extremely unclear to me what was going on. And so the next day I went and saw her and asked her and I got this long, long rant basically about why she got held up. And that related, that I could make sense of because I've done work on the succession to titles and competition among people who want to become headman of a village, which is a bit like becoming a small chief, I suppose. And so that work I had done separately and actually later helped make sense of what I witnessed and the, the conversation that I recorded, which I ended up listening to and transcribing during lockdown. So that's quite a long ex answer to your question. <laughs> uh, so... Looking at your bio, it seems you have a lot of interest uh, revolving around photography, such as social networks and photographic supplies in Nigeria. So you mentioned earlier that you have all these students coming in with a, such a broad range of interests. Is that the primary reason why you decided to write this book? Because it seems a bit a bit different than your other work. Right. Oh, it, it, it most certainly is. Yeah. And I should clarify, the seminar I'm running, it aren't, there's, it's not just my students, it's for the whole department. And so it's all sorts of different stuff. Um, so actually, I, I am learning, I, I suspect, more from them than they are from me. Um, but that is, but having to be able to address the research problems of the students of my colleagues has led me to have a I suppose a, an appreciation for a far wider range of theory than I can ever deploy myself in my own work um, and yeah that's why this book is so different um, so in my own work it really everything kind of starts and ends in Cameroon, really. Cameroon or Nigeria next door. And I should say, I mean, you've picked up this thing about the supply chains. That's a project waiting for someone else to do. Um, I haven't done that myself, and I would love to find a student who wanted to work on that. So your book is essentially, a good portion of it is essentially just definition of anthropology concepts. Um, which you really tie well together with your ethnographic work at the end. What was the reason for choosing this particular list of words? Um, yeah, thank you. That's a good one. I suppose the overwhelming re justification for 
let's start with the things I've left out. What I've left out are the really big ones. There isn't an ed entry on postmodernism. There isn't an entry on economic or Marxism, say. There isn't an entry on ontology. They, those kind of big theoretical ideas don't need any help from me. It's about the smaller ideas, which I still think are really interesting and really helpful, which, as it were, need a critical friend. And so the point of the book really is not to seize on one big idea and think it can help ev explain everything. Far better to use a, a wide range of different ideas, concepts, theories, call, call them what you will, and tailor a set of theoretical ideas, theoretical approaches, sorry, that help you understand the whatever the problem is that you're trying to come to grips with. I've, I often call it an eclectic anthropology or eclectic theory. Uh, I, it's been suggested to me that this is also almost um, theoretical anarchism, and I'm increasingly comfortable with that description. Perhaps we need a bit more anarchy in our lives. Um, yeah, yeah, at least, I mean, another way of saying it is that the world is messy, lives are messy, and um, what a lot of theoretical approaches do is simplify and smooth out the mess. Fine, but what you've lost then is the texture of everyday life. And so what I'm encouraging people to do, I hope, is to employ a messy set of theories which overlap, which don't quite mesh, and by leaving them like that, with the edges showing, we're better able to capture something more of the texture of everyday life and the texture of mess. So it's messy theory for messy lives. Um, yeah. I think that's actually very insightful. One of the issues that I've seen crop up in things like research is the disparity between the lab environment and that real life environment. And I think that that description of removing the texture is very very on the on the money if you uh understand what i'm what i mean thank you life has those rough edges that you're talking about you've got things that just don't fit what most people think they should fit but at the same time if you look closely everybody experiences those it is human experience and that's what we study isn't it absolutely absolutely and my suggestion is perhaps better to approach things 
through, I mean, I, I mean one, one of the metaphors I use is um, that of mosaics. So you can make mosaic tiles. And of course, the thing about mosaics, as opposed to photography or as opposed to paintings, is that the edges are left visible. And so if you think of each mosaic as each mosaic tile as being the result of applying a different theoretical approach, you end up with this polychrome, shimmering, slightly disorienting, perhaps, approach and a set of accounts which captures some more of the richness than just saying, well, here's the view from this big theory and everything else is out of account if you'll forgive the uh the description it's a bit like uh building something out of legos versus forming something out of clay yeah right? yeah yeah and also i mean and of course i mean i introduced 60 concepts here I'm not expecting anyone to use all of them. It's it's very much a pick and mix approach. So just as a question and, you know, to kind of help promote your book here, mm. uh, where would you place this book on the timeline of somebody's education? Would you put it early? Would you put it mid, late? What f function do you, functionality do you think that people are going to get out of it in specific? Or what were you intending? I, I suppose it. I'm intending it for some. It's probably students who are in their final year of an undergraduate course, possibly master's students, and those just starting doctorates. Okay. Where okay. you're scrambling. I mean, so undergraduates often do a project in their final year and they're so they're that's their first experience exposure to doing research and suddenly having this body of material which they have to analyze and you know what on earth are they going to do with it where, so that's where the book might be helpful then well, master's students, same sort of thing. And then a research student beginning to plan their research and fine, they've been told endlessly, well, recent years they've been told endlessly about ontologies and suddenly they have to think, well, what does it actually mean in practice? How can I actually ask questions, make sense of the answers. And it's at that sort of point that where, in my opinion, I find ontologies less and less helpful. It might be that you end up studying arguments where people, different people in the same group are arguing. Actually, they may be arguing about ontologies. And so, you can't actually apply an ontological perspective when the people you are um, analysing, people you are studying, working with, um, are themselves arguing about ontologies. And their ideas like 
essentially contested concepts might actually be far more helpful. And that's the idea that there aren't necessarily definitions that you can ever arrive at that everyone will agree at. Rather, these ideas, and now what we're talking about are words like democracy, freedom, uh, other examples of things like art with a capital A. Those, all those words, often written with a capital, they are endlessly disputed and people meet, come together through arguing about them and arguing about their meaning. And it doesn't help us to try and arrive at a meaning, uh, sorry, a definition, because the whole point of these concepts is that they are always being argued about. And you find this in politics with a capital P, but you also find it in politics with small p, lo local politics, disputes over, oh, I don't know, disputes over land ownership. Who inherited um, who inherited whose field? I once sat through a court case in the chief's court in Cameroon, which was all about payments made for head carrying the um, palm nut um, palm nut kernels. Um, what do you call it? A, a crown of palm nuts when it's cut. So it's bit, quite big and heavy and those get accumulated under trees and then people are paid to carry it from the trees to the village. And there was this insanely complicated narrative from the person whose palm trees they were explaining why the person in question had already been paid and that from the porter, the man who was disputing this. And not only I, but all the men on in the chief's palace who were trying to hear it, none of us could follow it. And in the end, they just said, look, sort it out between you. Let's do a ritual so there's no problem. We can't follow these stories. We don't think you can either. And, you know, <laughs> go away. But trying to actually arrive at a resolution is to misunderstand what's going on. Um, okay. Sorry, again, that's a long, uh, long explanation, a long answer to a very short question. <laughs> well, that's the that's the best kind, really, uh, in my opinion. It just means that we have plenty of material to to sort through and gain insight from. Uh, just to sum it up, though, would it be accurate to say that this is, in a way, a recontextualization or a reexamination of these advanced concepts, so that it would be easier for undergraduates to understand them? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy with that. Um, I'm trying to, so I suppose I'm trying to sell a wider range of ideas than many students often get exposed to. I think that fits pretty well with uh, with our concept here. You're, you're trying to bring more knowledge to a wider base. Yeah, um, one of the titles that we ended up not using 
which I'm still very fond of, and is actually reflected in the cover illustration, um, is that this is a set of recipes for making theory soup. Hmm. <laughs> I like that too. Or, I like that, or, yeah. Or not necessarily recipes, it's ingredients. It's ingredients for making theory soup. So a, a theory soup would be an individual project and each of the 60 different sections is, is one ingredient. Sort of an anthropologist cookbook. Yeah. I mean, there are anthropologist cookbooks which are actually about doing cooking. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think that was part of the reason we yeah. didn't go with it. We, there was a worry that we would be uh wrongly filed in in by amazon <laughs> that would be interesting you, you you're trying to buy a cookbook and you stumble onto this whole book of theory and <laughs> yeah oh. but i don't know if that's affected levi strauss because um i mean no one reads levi strauss anymore but um one of his uh, books was called the roar and the cooked <laughs> and it's partly about why in uh, well actually I'm it's so long ago that I can't remember whether he makes this point um that in North America certainly and in a lot of um Western Europe there's this thing about how women cook with ovens inside and then men go outside and do barbecues and so it's all different ways of treating meat. That's that's interesting, just so, because it, it dives into gender roles and all stuff like exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's about how, how you try. I mean, what Levi Strauss is definitely. I do remember this is discussing is how you transform raw ingredients into food, and you know a, the application of heat is key in doing that that's what's cooking is but there are different ways of applying the heat and what's appropriate in one context isn't appropriate in another um and i don't want to get come over to structuralist because of course structuralism is one of those big ideas that i'm not hugely in favor um in favor of and of course it is once was deeply fashionable now is deeply unfashionable but hey here's an idea what about being doing different things on different days of the week so you could be a structuralist on monday postmodernist on tuesday marxist on wednesday just for fun uh neo-ontologian on where have i got to thursday and then i don't know an environmentalist on Friday, Saturday, and a material, material culture object theorist on Sunday. Something like that. I've lost count, actually. Did I get to seven? <laughs> I, I, I lost count as well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I'm supposed to be counting. <laughs> but that's, that's the sort of, of pragmatism or eclecticism that I want to encourage yeah no i definitely think that um understanding viewpoints even ones that you don't agree with is is important 
that way you don't uh, mistakenly create a straw man in your head of their arguments and it, I mean, misinformation because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And, and they've all got different things to offer. So I'm saying profit from them all. Yeah, absolutely. I, I do have to say, I have to give you credit for being able to find an excuse to use uh, Monty Python as an example in your book. Excellent. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad someone noticed that. <laughs> That was good. That was. Well, wasn't that, expecting that. The, the life of Brian is a, a deeply anthropological film, <laughs> <laughs> and it has theological basis that um, there is lots of evidence that around two thousand years ago, in the Near East. There were loads and loads of different um, reformed Jews with different uh, and people from other religious traditions who were going around in, as it were, the religious marketplace and um, trying to recruit followers. And most of them fell by the wayside. But um, that's... You know, that was, I mean, I'm not so sure about the alien spaceship, um, <laughs> but um, that was, that's only a very small part of, uh, of the, the life of Brian. <laughs> so, if, if your readers could take only one thing from your book, what, what would that one thing be? Um, good question. You warned me about this, and I have thought of it, but now I am, what is the one? I suppose it's sort of a, um, what's the thing? Yeah, one of the ways of summarising postmodernism is a scepticism of large, big narratives. Now, I'm not a postmodernist. I mean, I've written books about realism. But I am sceptical about big narratives. And so I suppose the one take-home message is don't use just one theoretical approach. Use many. It's all about data. It's well. It's, no, it's not just about data. No, I won't buy well, that either. Because I, I do, I, I'm sorry. I, I argue with positivists too. No, no, no. I, you, you're entirely right. I'm. I didn't mean that it's just about data. I, I think that um, more data is usually beneficial. Yeah, is what I meant to say. Uh, and data is resilient. You can look at the same set of different data in many different ways and that's true that's true that's Context the point. matters. yeah mm -hmm. and perspective matters so yeah. um you know the if you sit around i mean at, at um what you've got thanksgiving coming up quite soon family gatherings thanksgivings funerals or whatever people sit around and reminisce and you often get this thing that the same events are 
remembered in really different ways. And I think that's really significant. And what we want are ways of sort of capturing that multiplicity and coming to a terms and explaining that sorts of multiplicity. All right. Once again, we were talking to Dr. David Zeitlin, author of the new book, An Anthropological Toolkit, 60 Useful Concepts. Also, we'd like to announce we now officially have a website. Visit us at www.anthropotamus.com where you can find Dr. Zeitlin's book. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you all for listening. Distribution of Anthropotamus is in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Please continue to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Anthropotamus for our latest episodes, show notes, and book discussion schedule.